Welcome to Market Proof Marketing, the podcast from the industry leaders at Do You Convert, where we talk about the current and future state of marketing and online sales for builders and developers across the globe. We're not here to sell you, we're here to help you and to try and elevate the conversation. Is there a topic you'd like us to cover or a question you'd like us to answer? We'll do it. Simply send an email to show at doyouconvert.com. I always love when really smart people join us on the Market Proof Marketing Podcast, and today is no exception. Mike Simonson, one of my newest friends, I hope he lets me call him that, is also the founder and CEO of Altos Research. Altos Research is a housing analytics firm that's been in business for over 15 years. They work with realtors, brokers, institutions, builders, anyone who wants to know what's going on in the housing market. Mike, thanks so much for hopping on with me today. Kevin, it's a pleasure. And yes, I'm glad to call you a friend. Yeah, Twitter friend first, and then and then now it's progressed into something more. So after all these years, Twitter is still my favorite. I always love talking about origin stories because I I shared a link to your YouTube series, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, a couple of different times today. And someone, I should look it up, but I don't want to for the sake of time. He said, you know, I first Mike is one smart cat, he said. I first met him at the inaugural bar camp in San Francisco, like 17 years ago or something. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, when we were starting, starting Altos and uh, I have a data company, bad data science and software background, but I didn't know anything about real estate other than, you know, what I'd, I'd built some models to understand, you know, my own home value and the market around my home in Silicon, my little old overpriced piece of shit Silicon Valley house, you know, <laughs> that I bought when I was 30 and I was giant mortgage and I needed to understand what was happening in the market. And so I started building some data around it. You know, as we started the company, we started doing things like these events where uh, just talking to people and talking to people who are in the business and, and really uh, learning about the industry. That's great. And I, I think, you know, what I really wanted I asked Mike to come on and talk to us a little bit about traditionally, and it was a trope that somewhat thankfully disappeared for a while, but at every housing new construction event you'd ever go to, Mike, someone would stand on the stage and act like it. they had just made this prolific statement that uh, home builders' biggest competition is used homes. And then they would pause for dramatic effect and everyone, oh, he's right. <laughs> and over the last two years, what I've, what I've jokingly told our audiences, we've been kind of just competing with ourselves. It's like, regardless, I mean, the consumer is always looking at all of their options, but we were competing against how fast could we build, how much could we bring on, how many home sites were available. And so what I want to return to is, or understand that people are returning to this concept of now realizing, oh my gosh, I am competing once again with existing homes. And now I'm getting all kinds of questions from people about existing home data and how the MLS works and can you make predictions or what insights can I glean from all of this data? And so the first thing I do obviously is I just point them to your YouTube channel and you do a great weekly series entitled How's the Market, which is fantastic. And you've had really great growth of subscribership and viewership of that, which is another thing I, I want to dig into just what it took for you to, to do that is that's another common question we always get is I think I should make more content. I feel like I should overcomplicate it and make something perfect. And yep. you know what you're doing is not perfect, but it's incredible. You know, at Thank the same you. time, in terms of production value, it's not perfect. I mean, right? But it's not. That's not why people tune in either. So yeah, I need to get better at the production value for sure. Ah, <laughs> that's just the cherry on top. But so I, I guess my initial question for you would just be: 
What are some of the things that if someone was brand new to real estate or home building that you would say that you've learned from looking at real estate data over the course of your career? You know, the traditional way we look at the real estate market is at closed transactions. And those transactions, those sales happened. There's signal there, and obviously it makes sense to watch those. But it misses so much signal of analyzing the active market and the active market as the asking prices and the changes in those asking prices and how many are newly listed this week and all of these signals. And traditional data, the traditional approach focused on the transactions, A, because you know the closed price is meaningful, but also B, because prior to, I mean, prior to Altos existing is, you know, there's 700 different local MLSs, local realtor associations around the country. And most of them didn't talk, talk to each other. They don't talk to you. They didn't really want you to know what was going on. You know, and in the nineties, you had to like, your realtor had the printouts of what was for sale. And so nobody had access to the, like, you couldn't analyze the active market because nobody knew what it was. And then post-internet, now we actually have ability to review the active market. And when we started Altos, people were shocked that we were analyzing the active market, the ask prices and the changes in ask prices. And so for example, you know, when you look in aggregate in, in, a, in a really hot market, the, the sale price is like 104% of the ask price at the market level. Any given house may be over or under, you know, in a really cold market, it's like 96%. Like the asking part, the, the active market is so rich with signal. And, you know, this is it's on the house is on the market now in August. It gets an offer in September. It closes in October or maybe November. And then you start hearing about the transaction in December. But I could tell you right now what's happening. And so, yeah. you know, that shift of, the shifting from that traditional view of we got to look at closed transactions to like, you know, like, oh my gosh, there's so much signal right now in the active market. Like that was a big shift. And that's one thing that was, you know, when we started the company, it was like, I realized I knew more, I was just building it for my own personal need, but I realized I knew more than anybody in the world about <laughs> what was happening in the market. There are like, there's a lot of local, like, you know, realtors have been in the business for a long time and they, they know yeah. their, their market very well. They know it in their bones. But they don't know it in black and white terms. They know it because of the amount of interactions they or their team are having, like just doing right. the work, they're getting that signal, but they, they're not quantifying it the way that you Yeah. Were. Or even, even some of them who are do, do that data, do it well. And, you know, do like, do quantify it well, but it's still, you know, it's still very local. And, mm -hmm. you know, what we decided that what we wanted to do was like, we have this view that's super valuable. And, you know, 2006, obviously, you could see that like the world had no idea what was happening in the housing market. And mm -hmm. there's all there was so much signal. And so so that's really what I've learned, but also tried to, to teach people. And we've made a lot of progress in the last decade because people obviously, you know, embrace it. And, and there's all kinds of there's all kinds of new signal that you get in there. Like we report on price reductions every week. You know, the percentage of homes on the market taking a price cut. Like that is a signal about transactions that are going to happen sometimes several months in the future. Yeah. Let's just break that down to, from a time frame perspective, because one of the things that a home builder employee oftentimes will think about 
I can't call something a move-in ready home unless it's completely finished and someone could move in tomorrow. But the reality is, because again, they're, they're thinking, Mike, about competing against that existing home that exists mm-hmm. and is complete. But it's very simple, but oftentimes we, we mistake the fact that just because that home exists and I can put an offer on it right now does not mean I can, I'm going to close on that transaction or be able to move in for what would be an average length of time from the, from the data that you're Well, it's, at. you know, it, it's, you know, you, you can imagine between purchase and close is it 45 days pretty easily. Yeah. And there's part between contract and closes, you know, 45 days, but that can go a lot longer too. And especially earlier in the year when we had such a crazy market, there was all kinds of lease back and, yeah. you know, like I, I'll sell you this house, but mine's not going to be ready. And, you know, for, four months. So I need to, so there's all those kinds of things that, that happen as well. So, yeah. So, you know, you look at a market, you look at houses on the market now and doesn't have any offers this, this month. It does a price reduction in, in September, and then it gets an offer in October and that closes in November or December, you know? Yeah. But, and so if you're selling a new home right now, that like, that's really a similar horizon, time horizon. Yeah. And some, some of the data points that, that you cover, like median sales price versus list price, mm-hmm. explain to everyone the difference of and what we take away from, from the correlation of, of those two data points. Yeah. So, you know, median sales price is sort of a traditional way to look, you know, about home prices. But I'd argue that the median list price is actually more interesting. Like if, you know, if I go and there's 40 homes on the market right now, the median price is... $459,000. And I go into that market and what I will see is 40 homes and they're right around $459,000. Some are higher, some are lower. The median sales price for that is calculated on homes that sold months ago and maybe not that many homes sold months mm. ago. In a, this year, it's not it's different. Like, but in, in most years, inventory is significantly better, bigger than the number of homes that sold. Right. And so, you know, you may have a median sales price of 350, but you go in the market, you're like every home, there's, there's only two under 400,000, right? And so the active price is really the signal that matters to a buyer or seller. Like I'm going to walk in the market today and I'm going to see there's 40 homes and here's where the prices are. And so that median list price, I, I argue, is, is really valuable. So you want median sales price is useful when you're figuring out, you know, where is it eventually going to close? Uh, you want to do a valuation, but when you want to answer the question, how's the market? Yeah. Like looking it, at the active it, price. It's really a, a, a summarization of all of these interactions that you can imagine in your head between real estate professional and consumer who wants to sell what is surely the most unique home on their block to right. them. How is that conversation going and who is winning? Who Who's saying, no, no, we're just going to we're going to throw this number out there because that's what we feel it's worth versus yep. a professional who hopefully is using Altos research reports and saying, but this is what it looks like your market is actually doing. Don't be one of those homes that's languishing on the market for two or three times the average length of time. And just that average list price is what plays out from all those individual interactions. That's right. And, and uh, you can think of it as the wisdom of the crowds, right? The crowds are yeah, it's, really, it's, I would, yeah, exactly I guess that's, I love that actually. It's, it is the real, it's the market yep. before the market. I don't know if that's a, yeah. You know? And you think about it, any given home, maybe over or underpriced, right? There are sellers who are like, I want to go 
see if I can get a sucker to pay me this much. There are agents, there are listing agents who will say, sure, I can get you that just to win the listing. Yeah, that that happens. And there are plenty of times when there's overbidding and prices home sell for more than than list. Uh, but in aggregate, those agents and those sellers, they know exactly where to price the house. They know exactly where to price it because they want to sell that house. And so what you find is that in aggregate, the list price is really close to the sales price. And it's also why changes in list price is a lot. There's a lot of signal in there, like price reduction. So how many of these homes are, are taking price cuts? Or we like a stat that we track, which is the median price of the newly listed cohort in a given week. These are the homes that like they got listed this week and where are they priced? So are they priced lower than the rest of the market and ticking down each week? Or are they higher and ticking up each week? Because those sellers, they say, oh, the house down the street, there was nobody at that open house this week. If I'm going to list, I need to price it a little discount. And so you see that signal really quickly. Yeah, one of the things that happens with traditional real estate data is that is that it's monthly and it's lagging, right? So I get where next week will be the last Tuesday of August and we'll get the Case-Shiller Index for June. <laughs> and it'll be including April, May, and June data in that, right? And... And April, May, and June was so long ago. Yeah, and this 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 is why people pay a lot of money for the type of insights. Not a lot of money because it's crazy expensive, but a lot of money because it's absolutely worth understanding that just that arbitrage you express, if you understand it right, you yeah. can understand how those who don't understand the housing market will look at the Case-Shiller report when it comes out and make assumptions about what should be done right now that are completely incorrect. They're completely incorrupt. And so we like to do, we, we do everything weekly. We do the whole country weekly. And so you avoid big step functions and you avoid that lag time. And that's a, that why there's so much signal in the active market. Yeah. Now, home builders are familiar with the concept of cyclicality in a, in a typical year. Spring is very busy for home builders. It's going to cool off in mid to late summer, a little bump of return in, in the fall, and then the holidays, just forget about it. Now, if you're listening, I'm not saying forget about it in terms of give up. I'm saying that every person who walks in that door is the highest quality prospect you'll ever interact with, and they're there to buy. But there's not going to be a tremendous number of them. Talk to us about what seasonality looks like on the existing side, both in terms of price and how that varies over the course of a typical year. We'll kind of ignore recency, as well as the number of homes. And that'll lead us into kind of talking about 2023 and some some thoughts. But when do people typically want to list their homes? When does that the number of homes on the market rise and fall? And and when do consumers kind of inherently know I should ask for more or need to need to be lower on my price? Yeah. So the the seasonal pattern is actually really same for existing as you described for new construction. And it's it is we can see if I, for example, look, you know, it's, so first and second quarter. We get, we get a rise, we get new inventory, we get the fresh inventory, we get the best properties, peaks June 30, and then typically, you know, July and August, you know, prices start ticking back, you have a little bit of a summer plateau, and then, and then uh, if you're listing late in the fall, or late in the summer, you know, school started, if you want that thing to not be on the market in 60 days, looking like 
Thanksgiving, you know, you price it at a little discount, right? And so you you price it at a little discount to make sure that it moves quicker at that time. And so you can see a, a very seasonal pattern in prices. And so the peak pricing is very, very often June 30th with a with a steep up climb in the first or second quarter. And in fact, with that price of new listings stat that we track, which is, you know, the new ones that come on the market each week, I actually love looking at that one between the second and third week of January and watching the slope of that change in that week and then being able to forecast for the year because you could see if that guy is is whoa, low. Whoa, did you just say forecast for the year off of yeah. one week? Off of that. Well, it's it's that little time frame. Yeah, yeah. You know, but you could see that in January, what you see is you see buyers and sellers like go if the, the new listings that come on at the end of January, they go, I got some demand, right? Like this winter is a perfect example. They say, I've got some, I've got real demand. They list. And so you get a steeper upslope in that price of new listings at the end of January, early February. And then because those are homes that are going to get transacted in March and, you know, and then you follow that trend for a few more weeks. Now you have your whole first and second quarter and that's where the price gains are made for the year. Like you could start. So because they're going to, they're going to gain up until that point of June 30th and then retrace to some point. That's going to be typically a higher high. That's right. Uh, yeah. Higher a higher low, low, sorry. A higher yeah. low in the next yeah. year. That's exactly right. And so you can see that uh, you can see that starting, the price is starting at that, at that moment. And you can see it. And so the first place you see that signal is in the price of new listings, because then after four weeks of, or so of new, those new listings, now that's the whole market. And that line tr- starts to trend up. And so it's really neat to watch. It's you know, one of my favorites there. I remember watching in 2011. So 2011, if you remember that bubble burst, it's carnage, it's Armageddon. Then in 2009. <laughs> wait, 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 time out. And that's not what we're experiencing now. Just right. for reference, this is just, just me reference. talking. Mike might have different. We are no, when people talk about crash, housing's in a recession, I just, it's not the same though. Whatever we're experiencing now, you can you put whatever term you, you want on it. It is not what happened then. That, that's why he's using superlative right. language like he is, because that was what everyone feared. I mean, that. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it scarred us forever. But it, but so then in 2009, there was a first time homebuyer tax credit mm-hmm. and, and it incentivized demand. So there were buyers yeah, in 2009 and it, that expired on April 1st of 2010. And one of the things it did, or maybe it was April 30th, whatever, April of 2010. And one of the things it did was pulled demand forward from the end of 2010 into that first quarter. So if I was thinking I'm going to buy this year, like I buy quickly. So as a result, mm-hmm. uh, December 2010 is, it feels like yeah, yeah. Armageddon again. Nobody's yeah. buying because they all bought in April. Yeah. And so then the headlines and the traditional data, which is lagging by several months, is now it's March of 2011. And they're like, housing's gone again. Housing's tanking again. Housing's, But we could look at the price of the new listings and we're like, I'm like, people are buying houses. Yeah. I think we're done with, I think we're on an, on an upswing. And and so we were, so, and I remember I did a, like a wall street tour with some of our big, um, you know, investor clients at that time. 
And they're like, okay, what's happening? I said, uh, people are buying houses, <laughs> you know, and, and they, uh, they, and I remember one, uh, big, big fund. And they said, you're the only person in the world who's bullish on housing right now. Like if you're right, that's a really big deal. Yeah. And you know, what we could see is that 2011, you know, recovered. And then, then like a lot of the lagging indicators, like the case Schiller, for example, turned at 2012, right. Because they were, but, but you could see it yeah. in that January of 2011. Michael, I love it. That's it's really interesting. So I'm interested next January, like this coming January, what are we going to see? Yeah. And so that, that will be fascinating. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's an example of some of what I feel like I'm seeing interacting with some of our builder partners now market by market. And for the record, for everyone on Twitter, especially I am not a bull or a bear. I'm just telling you what people are telling me and the numbers I see housing, generally speaking. I mean, honestly, there's a lot of headwinds for a lot of industries over the next 20, 30 years. Housing is not going to be any exception. Population, cost, costs, expense. There's going to be all kinds of things that we have to work through and find ways to improve. But I'm starting to wonder, you know, you've talked a lot about in your reports that the homes that are not selling quickly seem to be staying on longer. And there's this sense of there's, there's people who are getting it right. And then there's the people who are being aggressive on price, or they they haven't done what needs to be done with the product to make it saleable at potentially any price. But there's this effect that happens of stale inventory, for lack of a better term. And it feels like, and I'm just curious your perspective, it feels to me like some markets have eaten through relatively quickly now this inventory that was added, because for a while it was like 6 to 8% increase in, in the amount of homes on the market every week. Yep. But the good homes kept getting sold and chugging through relatively quickly. I mean, you in, in any given week, one of the things that, that Mike reports on is the number of homes that go into contract essentially immediately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which was a big phenomenon during the frenzy, right? Houses listed, takes offers that afternoon, 50 offers, you know, or take, you know, we're listing on Wednesday, we're yeah. taking offers Friday. Right. It's all essentially immediate. Right. So if the people who have an interest rate that is low but need to sell or want to sell, if that pool of people is being absorbed relatively quickly, the homes that are saleable and priced well, could that explain why then the return to some some, some builders are talking to me about, hey, our inventory is really starting to sell again, even in places that we would consider to be tough markets like Austin uh, and others. I'm just wondering if it's the fact that that even though inventory levels are up, that what is there is compared to new construction just less desirable, and it's almost like the the consumer has said, "Okay, let's go back and return to something that it, it might be a little bit more than I wanted to spend originally." But now builders are getting more inventory that's hitting the market as fully finished, and compared to the stale listings that I'm seeing. It's yeah, and you know that. that could be uh, in the the inside of the mind of the consumer. You know, one of the things that's probably going to be different during this cycle is that, you know, typically, as you said, you know, the, the competition for new homes is existing homes. And and if I'm shopping, I'm shopping for a home. I can shop. That's I right. can, and, and the prices move together, you know, like that one's getting more expensive. They're all getting more expensive. What's interesting here now is that American homeowners are in such a good financial position 
with the cheapest mortgage ever and lots of equity and rents are high and you know like and everybody's got a job like all of these reasons like i don't have to sell my house if it's not if there's not a lot of buyers so i may choose not to list my house for sale but all of a sudden like we have so many homes under construction that that now it could be that you know the activity shifts to the new construction because like that's where the game is, yeah. right? Because you know, because existing homeowners don't don't have to sell and don't you know they don't or don't want to or they're apprehensive or they're they're afraid that they're not going to get offers. But you know, as a builder and you're completing inventory, like it's it's time to sell it. So it you could yeah. I could imagine that that would be very different in this cycle than previous ones. So you know the yeah. the bubble burst and there was a lot of new construction and there was a lot of people who had bought multiple homes with lousy mortgages. And so everybody had to sell everything at the same time. Yep. But maybe that's not, maybe that's different this time. Yeah. And that's, that's definitely conversations we're having at the owner or C-suite level with builders is this sense of, it seems counterintuitive, but maybe we should continue to build a level of speculative inventory to be complete in late spring and early summer, even though the headlines and pieces of feedback I'm getting now say that would be the dumbest thing that you could do. If I believe that new construction is going to, to be the only thing that's that's bringing extra supply to market, I might need to roll the dice on that assumption. And that, again, it's another example of why this time is different, because there was no one thinking to themselves in, in 08 or 09, I think we should build more inventory. Yeah, should we, I mean, that, that conversation wasn't even on the, on the yeah. table <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it could indeed be that, you know, a couple months ago, we're watching that inventory climb, the, the existing inventory climb, and it felt like we were going to get back to normal levels you know, a million single family homes on the market, but now it looks like we're going to end the year 500,000. And, and so we're still going to be in shortage territory. So, and that's basically because, you know, sellers don't have to sell. It's a good time to keep owning it, to just hold it. And as Rob Hahn keeps saying, if you, even if you did sell it, what else are you going to do with your money? Right. Where are you going to put that You're probably just going to try to time it to the point where you can get back into real estate again. Yeah. I had a investor, actually, like a, he's an entrepreneur friend, and he's always lived his life as, um, you know, like I keep cash for every debt. I can, and he's been very, very conservative with debt. But during the pandemic, he said, well, I think we've got inflation coming and I can get a 2.8% mortgage. And so he went out and bought himself like a multi-million dollar house, levered it up as much as he could. He said, I'm expecting to have this, you know, locked in and have an inflationary environment for a bunch of years. And so he goes, I, I took on the debt and it's like, I don't have the guts to do that trade, but <laughs> it's looking like a good trade to him so far. Yeah. Right. And so he can hold on to that house forever. And like his payments are locked in ultra low. And so like, what else is he going to do with that money? It's better than, it's been way better than having in the stock market the last year. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what is the, what's the, other than the, uh, the week in January that you're going to be watching uh, list price, what, what are you going to be looking at leading into the end of this year? That's going to give you indication of, of what 2023 is likely to look, so there's, look like? So there is a, another stat that we track that is actually has a nice parallel in new construction. And that's the percent of homes on the market that have been relisted. 
And when they go in, uh, you know, there's, there's usually one or 2%. They go in a contract, they fall out of contract, or they didn't get offers, and now they're relisted again. When the market turned in, for example, in Silicon Valley in 2006, this is, I'm just, we were just doing early, early stuff with the company, but we were watching Silicon Valley and we could watch it go from a couple percent being relisted to 30% of the homes on the market have been relisted. And mm. these were stale. They were pulled off the market. They were relisted. They get all the new, new listing, marketing push, yeah. all of that stuff. And that was 2000, like five and six. And so that is really foretelling about organic levels of demand and things like that out there. And so, you know, the parallel, of course, in new construction are the, the cancel rates, right? And so we will be watching the relisting rate and seeing if that is climbing. If that's climbing, you know, this fall, it actually will typically... You know, properties get pulled over the holidays, and so they get relisted in January. But going in there, so that's a little elevated right now from where it's been the last few years. And I thought it was trending up, but now it's not really trending up. So I'm going to keep my eye out for for relist rate, and that'd be a signal that you know there's no backup offers, contracts are falling, buyers are getting cold feet, yeah, appraisals aren't happening, whatever, all of those things, and they're all pretty bearish. So if if that climbs, that's going to be a signal to me about you know, pricing in the future about, you know, where the buyers are, that kind of demand in the future. That's yeah, one. Home builders listening. It's not just you that have a cancellation rate. The cancellation rates do exist in existing as well. Yeah, that's um, right. That's awesome. But again, links are in the show notes. Definitely check out Mike's channel and his website and, and talk to him and his team about getting access to this kind of data directly. If you're interested in it, I want to kind of shift at the end though, to, to some of the behind the scenes of just how long have you been creating content for YouTube? Because I think I was your 999th subscriber. Jeff Turner was your thousandth. Right. Uh, I, remember, I remember that conversation, but that wasn't that long ago where, where you were no. like, hey, everyone, check us out on YouTube. And now you're you know approaching 8,000 subscribers. It's not uncommon for a video that you just posted yesterday to already have two and a half thousand views. So, yeah. so just talk to us. Not like from a business owner perspective, but just a guy with an idea to share, thinking through how am I going to get communicate this? What led you to, to using video and and being consistent with this? How's the market report? Yeah. So the video started basically the second week of the pandemic lockdown. Oh. And I'd thought about it for years. I see other people do really great video content. I hadn't done anything. I'd, I've done some blogging and writing over the years, a lot of Twitter, especially 10 years ago, but I, I hadn't done anything. Well, you, actually, yeah, we, Mike is a progressive individual, everyone. Like he, he's on his way to Burning Man very, very shortly. So he, you know, you, you're always leading edge and, and you're trying new things and, and you've been sharing ideas and content for forever. For a while. But the videos I, I'd resisted and I'd resisted for, you know, all the, the reasons like, you know, do people care? Do they, you know, like, <laughs> is it going to be any good? Like, what am I going to say? So we had a couple of product catalysts that started to make it really easy for me to do. We had, you know, some marketing things that we were updating. And I started the pandemic and I had an entrepreneur friend, colleague who did a webinar is the beginning of the pandemic. And he was like, here's what we're seeing. And he was for his customers. And I thought, that's a really good idea. I should do a webinar. 
and say, here's what's happening in the market. Here's what we know. And so I did that. It was like the first week of April of 2020. And I thought maybe you get a couple dozen people there, but there was a couple hundred that that showed up. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh, maybe I should do this. And so what I was doing was I said, I will, I'm just going to do a video every week because if this market is tanking, people need to know what's happening. Like, I'm going to tell them like, as you know, the pandemic's coming, it's going to be chaos. So I'm just going to tell them. And, and then all of a sudden we only had three weeks of tanking three weeks of market downturn. And all of a sudden I was like, people buying houses and inventory is falling. And so what happened was like, it's really nice when like the the data had a real story to tell. And so I told it. (laughs) <laughs> and it was really compelling, right? And and so it was compelling for me to look at the data next week and see what's the next chapter saying. So that was a start. Like it was April 1, uh, 2020 when we did it. So now it's two, more than two years in and, and I've only taken a couple of weeks off next week. I'll take off and won't, won't be able to do a video, but but just done them all the way through. And, and of course, pandemic is nice. You're not going anywhere. So I just do another video this week, and, and so really. <laughs> so the it, consistency. Started, it started with webinars, and you still do a monthly webinar that that yep. caps at a thousand people. Yeah, uh, urgency there. You know, sign up for that if you want to be part of that. But your other videos that you do weekly are recorded that are yep. not live. Right. I'm assuming at this point, how much prep time are you putting into that, or are you letting the the story kind of unfold? Like how- I, each of those 10 minute videos takes me several hours, probably four hours of work. We get the preliminary data over the weekend. I have a giant spreadsheet that I put things into. I script out all those. So I write the really? script about what I'm going to talk about. And then because it helps me, I like, I like to think about crafting the story rather than just winging it. Yeah. Um, hundred percent. But I, I, I'm, I'm wondering if mentally you feel like those four hours are, are as difficult now as they were when you started. That's kind no, of, they're, they're way better. There's a set of four to six different charts of, you know, things that I've been sharing that people like, feels like that's where the story is. And sometimes I change it up a little bit like, Oh, you know, let's focus on price reductions this week. Cause it's all of a sudden there's a story there. And you know, the market's been so dynamic and so crazy that the story changes frequently. And, you know, for a while the inventory was climbing and that's the story. And now it's surprise. It's not climbing. Yeah. And like, that's a real different story. Uh, and then this week on top of that, the price reductions has <laughs> plateaued, right? So, so there's another, another <laughs> chapter there. I think what I'm picking up then is, is that one of the keys to the success intentional or unintentional is that every weekly episode episode is essentially a cliffhanger. Right. Because yeah. it's like, it's like when you binge watch anything, you know, I, I, I haven't had this experience because I just watch it every week when it comes out, but I can imagine someone wanting to to look at different segments of what you're discussing kind of back to back to back. Maybe, maybe you can remix a, uh, a short form version of just one of those metrics, like over the course of three. Oh, really? that's, that's funny. Yeah. But yeah, it's like every time you're ending with, and so we're going to, I'm real, I can't wait to see what, and if you can't wait to see what next week looks like on a data point, heck, I, I'm setting my watch. Like, when is the next yeah. video going to get uploaded? Yeah. So that really, that consistency definitely, you know, improved, helped me improve the, you know, the scripting and, and, you know, you write a couple thousand words, a, you know, on a Sunday and a Monday, like that's a good habit to be in and it helps mm. with thinking. It, it, it forces me to think about the data better. 
you know, it's, it's Twitter and YouTube, like there's some opinions out there and, <laughs> and like, I try to consider them and, you know, like, yeah, you know, of course, right now, if you share anything bullish, anything that says like, you know, the market looks like, like right now it's like, I think there's not going to be that much inventory next spring. So, you know, it's actually going to be tight for buyers. Yeah. And there's a whole universe of people who just, they can't tolerate that message at all. And so there is underlying signal and what their, their message mm -hmm. is. So I like to consider that and think about yeah. like, what can I learn there? And what, you know, if this is a hypothesis that it's going to tank, then how can I test that every week? Right. Yeah. And I think that's going to be my last question for you then, because I like to end on a down note. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, everyone. But, you know, <laughs> what, what do you feel like it would take or what do you feel like you need to see in the data to really tell you? Is it, again, that relisting that would make you say, whoa, this is not good? I mean, to me, I feel like it would have to be on the jobs front mm -hmm. uh, until jobs in large numbers across all different categories and geographies becomes a bigger issue. I don't. And, and even then, I, I think it's going to insulation of, of where people are from an equity standpoint. It just feels like it still would be different. So I, I don't. And that's where I, I just think new construction and existing can, can are, are two different markets in the same market. And, mm -hmm. and I, I'm having a hard time coming up with a lot of really negative scenarios for the existing housing market. Yeah. So yeah, jobs. And so if you have a big jobs loss recession, we have a lot of unemployment for a sustained period of time. It's really another year or more after right. we get that unemployment. So it's really yeah. 2024, maybe 2025 before, if we had a big recession that starts now. And so then next spring unemployment's high. And then, you know, then it's 2024 or maybe 2025 before we have inventory from people who are selling their houses. And so it's, it could be a long way off. I don't predict recessions, right? I have no idea. <laughs> No, idea. Yeah, I don't. But I, I think don't. we have to not even wonder what the definition of that term is anymore, either. Yeah, I mean, just, it's like we'll I, know, I know when we see it. I don't predict interest rates, and I don't predict recessions. I have no idea. But if it happens, so you could imagine that 2024, 2025, we finally see some inventory. However, I do. You know, if we have as if rates, assuming rates stay five, six percent, yeah, we will see slightly more inventory year over year. And that's because, you know, like fewer investor deals pencil out. Mm. And so those get relisted rather than staying, yeah. you know, like there's a, those kind of things that and will add a little bit to inventory. That's what's hard to me about words, I guess, is, is when you talk about housing recession from whose viewpoint, I mean, that's, that's, I keep coming back to from the consumer's viewpoint who has tons of equity and doesn't need to sell and has a job. I don't, I don't think that's what we're talking about. Are we talking about home builders no. not feeling excited to create more permits? And so right. that that's in recession. Are we talking about not enough transactions for realtors and brokers to make a living? Is that the recession? Mm -hmm. we're talking? What, what is the recession that we're in? And, that, and that's, when I say it's, I see a hard time finding a, a short-term, really negative scenario for existing. I'm talking about from the consumer's perspective. Yeah, I think the yeah, it's really fascinating, houses. right? I, the, like I, I in my podcast, I like I look for like what's the thing that's going to hit us that I'm that we're not looking at right now. I, I don't know what it is, but but uh, but I we keep looking for it. I heard someone I, say asteroids or global global warming at a at a catastrophic level, and so if we're if we're if we're going to that place, then then the sh it, it doesn't look that bad <laughs> to me. Yeah. 
in the next well, six you know, months? I, you know, I think there's things like uh, there's a lot of, you know, crazy. We have we have some crazy political things. You know, one of the fascinating things right now is that the economy is pretty good. GDP's growth is is down, but like we're unemployment, like yeah. a lot of things were, are really good yeah. about the economy. But the public thinks it's the worst economy in 70 years. Yeah, sentiment is terrible. It's terrible. And so, you know, that means like if you think the economy is the worst in 70 years, you're probably not going to buy a house. Right. Yeah. You're not you're like you're afraid to transact. A lot of times it's um the the phenomenon I've been hearing and I think about a lot is is like everything sucks, but for me it's fine. Mm. And so, you know, then the question is, am I the the consumer who's like, well, I have cash and I have a good job, so I'm gonna buy a house, or is it like, you know, the consumer that says, Wow, the economy's the worst ever. I'm not going to buy a house. And so like there could you could see you could see a prolonged period of demand being weak because consumers think the economy is the worst thing ever and they, they they're afraid to transact. Yeah. Um I could see that kind of thing. And, and that, that would and I I completely agree. Demand for new could fluctuate pretty drastically or for more. But demand to get rid of or the want to sell what I'm in currently, that's and for those of you who think that everything is rational and that you can just tell someone to change their sentiment. I, I have four kids under the age of 16. And if one of them is in a terrible mood and I just say, no, but look, it's sunny outside and you've got this, their mood is not changing in the next 10 <laughs> seconds based upon my factual representation of the data whatsoever. Right. Well, we ended on a little bit of a down note, but if you want to get back up, just go check out Mike's series and, uh, and he'll tell you what the data is showing. And right now, Painting a, I want to say a picture of stability, just that the the ups and downs are are kind of Yeah, the picture right now is surprisingly stable. And it's I think the surprise is the is the news right now for me because it's like it, you know, we had we watched inventory climb, we watched demand stop, you know, abruptly, and inventory climbed. And so you know, if that trend had continued, then we, you know, all of a sudden are you know, we could be in a in a much more fragile market. Inventory climb and nobody buyers and prices fall, uh, but that trend has not continued. And and so that's it's a, it was a surprise that like oh, sellers are acting very clearly right now. Yeah, and you know they didn't get any offers. Well, I'll take the house off the market. Right, I try because there's just not that that demand or or need to sell in the need same to sell. way. Yeah. Uh, so that that was the that's the news right now. It was surprisingly stable, and what that implies for next year is that we'll start with with low inventory shortage inventory still a little well you know more than last year, but a third more than last year, but still half of what normal, and and so that implies that buyers won't they they're not going to find bargains Cer certainly not at what whatever affordable is in in the place in the world you're listening to this to. You know, in, in Columbus, Ohio, if if the buyer is looking for a house under under three hundred fifty thousand dollars, there will be none to be found for the foreseeable future, because yeah. builders aren't building them, and people aren't letting go of them. Yeah, it's surprisingly stable. It's surprisingly stable. That's the news, you know, right now. Awesome. Well, fascinating as expected. Uh, time flew by. Thanks so much again for joining us. Again, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes to, to Mike's company and his, his YouTube channel and all, all the fantastic content that he and his team put out. 
Kevin, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Have you on again soon. Marketproof Marketing is proudly supported by Opendoor. Visit opendoor.com forward slash do you convert to learn how you can partner with Opendoor to increase certainty, speed, and ease for your home buyers. All opinions expressed by me, Andrew Peek, Jackie Lipinski, and our castmates are solely our own opinions. View hundreds of articles, videos, and more for free at doyouconvert.com. It's also the best way to find out how to connect with us on social networks or in real life. Now get to work and make sure your company is market-proof.